Okay, so on that note, um, and also from, from me and Brian and everyone at Dundee, uh, thank you guys very much for being here. Thank you for sticking it out through this conference. Um, we've really enjoyed it a lot. It's been great to have this many uh, interesting, exciting people around these parts. Not that there's not normally lots of really interesting, exciting people around these parts. So, uh, <laughs> so I recommend coming back. And to do at least one marketing plug, if anyone here uh, is looking for a place to study at some point, feel free to... Uh, email some of the faculty or get in touch. We'd love to have more colleagues and we're fun people to drink and study with. Um, <laughs> may, first. Maybe more of the former than the latter. Um, but on that note, um, we'd like to uh, introduce our last speaker, uh, Professor Peter Hallward, and um, maybe say a word about why uh, we, we asked him to come and speak in this. Um, the, the initial impetus for the conference was to have um, Graham and Adrian fight each other violently. Um, no. Um, <laughs> But at some point, we, we thought about sort of the stakes of this debate, not only, I guess, intellectually or philosophically, but sociopolitically or practically. And, and I thought about this while listening to the uh, Zagreb conference that Adrian mentioned and listening to Peter's presentation from that, in which he talked a bit, and sorry if I misquote you at all, um, talked a bit about the stakes of a debate between idealism and materialism. Um, and if the point is really to just be a materialist or be an idealist or be a realist or... Um, if the point is to use those terms and use those conceptions of philosophy. And I think a lot of us here, some of us, may share a general Marxist conception of what philosophy does, um, of thinking about the world in such a way that we can then change it or do something. Um, and I think that that's why Peter's work is interesting and why we, we wanted him here, to, to look at this debate, not just intellectually, but looking at how these terms and how these debates can help us think through um, what philosophy can do in the world. Um, and now for more biographical stuff. Um, I'm sure everyone here knows Peter. Um, he's well-known for works on Deleuze and Badiou, um, most recently um, a really, really important book on Haiti. And I know now, I'm assuming you're still working on the project of uh, developing the dialectical voluntarism. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think we'll hear a, a new, or a fragment of that work today. Is that what you say? I hope so. Something like that? Okay, great. Well, with uh, no further ado, let's welcome Peter Hallward, and uh, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. And first to thank, I know I can repeat um, what Adrian said this morning as the last speaker, to thank um, Brian and Mike for organizing this and the support also that you've had in Dundee. It's been a really warm welcome and a great event. So thank you very much again for that. It's really great, I think. All right. And also as the last speaker, you might be relieved to know that this is going to be pretty informal and pretty sketchy in comparison to the closely argued and conceptually rigorous stuff that you've had for the last two days. I don't really have much more than a set of questions, and, I, and, and I'm always kind of tempted also with a, a talk like this to go as quickly as possible to the discussion. It's not to say that it actually happens, um, but that's where I think it might be interesting. I'd be quite curious to know what people's reactions are, um, particularly to this kind of the voluntarist project that I'm working on, the bigger picture now. I won't go into that uh, in too much detail, but what I'm, what I'm basically trying to do here is see how far Marx can be read, somewhat against the grain, but in line with a kind of voluntarist project, to read Marx as a voluntarist, uh, and to some extent then against Hegel. Of course, Hegel is a magnificent voluntarist too, but uh, particularly I'll be talking a little bit at least about his uh, philosophy of right, the elements of the philosophy of right, which is from start to finish a, a, a voluntarist book. The whole book is about the will and the determination of the will, the objectification of the will. Whereas you don't find much language like that in Marx, uh, at least not after 19, 1845 or so. Um, but that's what intrigues me more. Um, and it seems to me that this is, the, this is the kind of dividing line that is most acute and most pertinent in some of these debates um, 
around idealism and materialism, for me, crystallize more in terms of determinism and voluntarism. Um, and that the point that divides uh, certain kinds of thinkers, let's say on the one hand, the Stoics, Spinoza, Hegel, Deleuze, for me, would all kind of fall on the same side of the divide, from people who privilege uh, uh, the primacy of will, freedom, and so on, let's say, broadly speaking, people from like Descartes, Kant, um, uh, Marx, and then a whole series of kind of subject-oriented Marxists, starting with Lenin, going through people like uh, Che Guevara and various others, Fanon, and so on. And the divisive point being there, uh, between people who have an, an account of freedom, let's say, and I would accept that um, Spinoza and Hegel certainly have that. Spinoza, well, let's say Hegel in particular, maybe has nothing else than an account of freedom. But it's an account of freedom that proceeds according to its own fundamental logic, that carries people along with it and uses them or sees them as the instruments of this fundamental logic, as opposed to people who appropriate their own freedom, take their own freedom, and in the taking, uh, set themselves at odds with the general tendencies of the world, let's say, uh, which is how I'd want to read Marx, that's how I'd want to read the other uh, people that I mentioned. And that has been the divisive issue, and if you look at this, say, the historiography of events like the Haitian Revolution or the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution or pretty much any revolution that I'm familiar with, it's always that that's the dividing line. So you have freedom, all very good, but the active process of people you know, combining together and taking their own freedom in the face of the resistance that that provokes, that is the thing that is much more um, divisive. So that's what uh, intrigues me, and what I'll do then is a pretty conventional, I mean, in fact, Mainly I'm thinking this is so obvious, perhaps, that we could perhaps just skip uh, a good deal of it, because um, it comes out of an argument that maybe is not that pertinent here, but talking to some people in Slovenia in particular who have the exact opposite reading, who see Hegel as the great philosopher of self-emancipation, Marx as a kind of secondary figure largely bound up with um, the status quo and so on, a thinker of determinism precisely. And it could be that outside of that little parochial argument, it's really not that much interest. Uh, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but that's the issue. I, I refer quickly maybe to a point that um, came up when Austin was talking about South, about the, the lack of... Where, where is Austin? Um, there. So at the end you said one of the problems of South is that he doesn't have an account of, you know, of the, the grounds the for itself. Like, where does the for itself come from? And part of me agrees with that, although don't forget he does have an account of imagination, right? So the first place where consciousness comes from uh, is he has an account, at least of it, in the, the psychological faculty of imagination, um, which itself then becomes the at least in the, the way the mind works, is the ground for negation. Because the, we can imagine things that aren't here. And in doing so, we open a gap in the fabric of being, right? But I, I agree with you on another level, though, that he doesn't have a causal account. And maybe you can't. This is the, I think it's a general point that you can't have a causal account of freedom that doesn't cancel itself out. You need to have an account of freedom to have some kind of account that anticipates freedom. That, in other words, that's based on a taking of freedom where the cause and effect relation get twisted around. So it's an effect that precedes its cause in some sense and can appropriate its own cause or justify itself after the fact. That there's always that, you know, there are con in other words, there are conditions for that. And I hear I agree very much with what Adrian said. You know, that there's the only certain kinds of organisms have that capacity and only certain kinds of uh, people have that capacity in the sense that an infant or someone who's asleep or someone who... Um, you know, there are, there are conditions that don't apply that inhibit something like the, the voluntary taking of freedom but that it, it works in, according to that kind of logic, not a kind of direct causal logic, but one in which the effect, in some sense, anticipates its own cause. And you see that quite explicitly in people like Rousseau um, and Marx, I think. Um, and then in a, quite a, a slew of other people, Jefferson, um, Chomsky to some extent, 
Um, I think Badiou too, although we can come back to that. So there's a, a kind of anticipatory appropriation of freedom that is fundamental here. And that's that kind of logic oriented towards the future that I, that I would associate with Marx, whereas Hegel, I go along with what is now a pretty standard reading of Hegel as someone who's fundamentally oriented towards a retrospective recapitulation of the past, um, in which then, of course, there's, in a sense, nothing but freedom in Hegel, but it's always oriented towards a kind of um, recapitulation of what has already happened um, and becoming aware of what has already happened, in a sense. All right, so I'll, I'll go through this, uh, and I'm going to talk about Hegel um, very briefly. Um, for me, the, the issue with Hegel is not, is not his idealism in the sense that he abstracts mind from its moorings in material reality. The problem is actually more that he's too much a thinker of actuality in his own distinctive sense of the term, uh, which is to say, fundamentally, a thinker of objectivity, um, which can quite easily tip into a kind of justification of the status quo, and it's a very familiar argument uh, made against Hegel, uh, but a kind of massive... A cosmic level of theodicy that justifies pretty much every hideous thing that's ever happened in human history, as long as it has its place in the contribution of the unfolding of freedom, of course. So it's, it's not at all to say that Hegel's a reactionary thinker of the Prussian state or something like that, which is clearly not true. I mean, people like Lesurdo and many others are right about that. He's a thinker of freedom, he's a thinker of the French Revolution, but he's a thinker of these things as the midwives of, of freedom, which is developing out of its own internal necessity, and uses people, and uses um, you know, world souls and so on, nations, etc., as its vehicles through the famous uh, cunning of reason. So, and this is a very standard reading, and I'll refer to two pretty standard commentators. Michael Inwood, for example, who's about as standard as you get, maybe, uh, who insists on Hegel as an objective idealist, and I think this is fundamental. He says, the objectification of reason and understanding are essential to Hegel's idealism. Genuine rationality consists in the submission and conformity of our reason to the reason inherent in things. In cognition, we should follow the imminent dialectic of concepts, objects, and processes. In practical life, we should conform to the intrinsic rationality of our society, of the actual. And I think that's broadly right, and it's not a, it's not a radical revolutionary message. It's a, it's a message of the slow, gradual, progressive um, emancipatory capacity of, of reason, you know, rational order of things as it's established in society as it is. So it's not reactionary, but it is fundamentally conservative, I think. And Harris is right in his mammoth book on the phenomenology of Hegel's Ladder to say that you know, we go through all these experiments in social improvement, social change, to arrive at their somewhat chastened uh, position of coming to rest, as he puts it, quote, with the instinctive conservatives who always knew that the world is just the way it should be. And I think, uh, and I would, this would be slightly more provocative perhaps to say that that is fundamentally what's going on with people like the Stoics, Spinoza, Hegel, Deleuze as well, is that it's a matter of conforming to the fundamental nature of things, the order of things, or the animating spirit of things that drives their development in certain ways. Now, that development might be, on some sense, more or less anarchic, chaotic, um, uh, shot through with different dynamics of emergence and so on, but fundamentally it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of tapping into the causal forces or the forces that are contributing to this uh, tendency, rather than interrupting them, deciding something else, imposing a kind of will on uh, these tendencies that might interrupt them. Uh, so I'll, I'll just refer quickly, without going into any detail about this, the phenomenology and then the um, philosophy of right, the phenomenology, uh, and again, these are well-known points, can be read easily as a kind of self-education of uh, spirit, and that's exactly how he presents it in the preface. Um, 
But what's striking is that this education has already been fundamentally accomplished. Right? It's a matter of recapitulating an education that has already uh, basically come to an end. So he puts it in section 29. You know, the world spirit goes through this enormous labor of world history, but in order to essentially to remember what it's done. All this has already been implicitly accomplished. It's a matter of recollecting it. The goal is already fixed, as is the series of progressions, as he puts it in section 80. So the self-education of spirit, then, is a, is a movement that can proceed all by itself. It's just a matter of kind of observing and watching it. And what is uh, particularly striking is that the movement happens um, for the spectator who's looking on and not for any of the individual um, faces of consciousness that are caught up in this. So the movement takes place, as he puts it again famously, quote, behind the back of consciousness. And that applies, uh, as it does, I think, everywhere to the, save, the master-slave dialectic. In other words, the place, the, the main argument about emancipation there, where there is no account of the self-emancipation of the slave, just like there's no account of the self-emancipation of Antigone later, or in fact the self-emancipation of any particular actor. What there is is an account of a contribution to an overall uh, uh, discussion of freedom, but that works through the slave. So this, you know, the end of the dialectic, if you remember, is, is Stoicism, right? In other words, a retreat from the effort to change the world or engage in the world. Um, which is why, parenthetically, I, I, and this is part of what this came out of, I wouldn't go along with the people like Susan Buck Morse and Zizek and a few others now uh, who want to celebrate this relation between Hegel and Haiti. Haiti, the Haitian Revolution, understood as the great exercise in the self-emancipation of the oppressed or the enslaved in this case. I think it's forcing the issue. I'm um, three brief problems with Susan Buckmorse's account. So this is referring to her article, 2001 article, Hegel and Haiti, which was republished about a year ago now in her um, Hegel Haiti Universal History. Is that the book? Which um, Zizek, with his typical enthusiasm, sort of leaps on as the great. This is the great key to understanding the nature of communism. Hegel and Haiti is like the most fundamental combination of things that's ever happened. And <laughs> um, if you have a look at his most recent book, uh, the first time is. Uh, tragedy, second time it's Forrest's book, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Um, and, uh, and I think this is a very weak argument, unfortunately. It'd be nice if it was true. It would uh, make Hegel more interesting than he is, but there's really very little evidence for it. First of all, I think it's when, what, when Susan reads the Hegel, the master-slave dialectic, she gets it kind of back to front. She, she says that ma the master-slave dialectic gives rise to a struggle to death. So the slaves have to wager, have to fight and risk their lives struggling against their masters to win their freedom. But of course it's the other way around, right? For, you have the struggle, but struggle to the death first, and then the, imp the outcome of that is that one person says, okay, this is too heavy, I'll settle for being a servant or a slave, and uh, becomes a slave as a result. The movement out of slavery doesn't proceed through a life and death struggle, it proceeds through work, labor, the laborious process of work, which in fact takes the rest of the phenomenology to, uh, to proceed. So I think that's the first problem, and that's been pointed out by a bunch of people. There's quite a good review in um, this the most recent issue of the New Left Review, which I just came across by Stephen um, Anderson, I think it is. No, the other way around. And Hang on. Anders Stephenson, uh, which I'd recommend. Um, that's in New Left Review uh, 61. So that's the first problem. It's been pointed out also by Sybil Fisher and various others. Second is the anecdotal evidence that... Um, that uh, Susan Buckmorris puts together is very thin. Again, she shows that Hegel probably knew of accounts uh, about the Haitian Revolution that were being published in the journal Minerva, and she gives a couple of examples. The examples, though, all, with one exception, point to a critical reading of the Haitian Revolution. It's just what you'd expect from, you know, bourgeois mainstream European opinion in 1803, 1804. Um, mostly it refers to kind of pro-Girondin 
moderate anti-Jacobin positions. Uh, and those people took consistently, right from the beginning, an anti-Haitian slave revolution position. And I don't see why Hegel would have been any different. The third uh, problem is, um, is that she, she has to then account for the fact that he's notorious, you know, Hegel's notorious racism and an effective defense of slavery as a phase in the education of black people, basically, which is very explicitly what he says in the philosophy of history. She has to argue that away by saying, well, Hegel became more stupid over time. It's literally her argument. He became dumber. But I don't think there's much evidence for that, unfortunately. Uh, I think Hegel was pretty smart from start to finish, and his position was simply consistent. Um, so I, 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 think, um, I think maybe that's enough um, about that. I, I think the same broad argument can be borne out in relation to the elements of the philosophy of right, although I'll skip over this a bit more quickly. The magnificence of this book is that it is, as I said, it's a book about the will. It's, about, it's entirely a book about the free will, about what, it has, what are the conditions under which willing can be truly free. Well, it has to be social, it has to be grounded, of course, in ethical life, which is to say through the institutions uh, that culminate in the institutions of the state. The problem is that in what, what the, the overall uh, effect of this argument is to say that will the process of willing is nothing other than a subjectification in the institutions that supports fundamental rationality, such that uh, the difference between the active process of willing and the active recognition of the actuality of the objective institutions that have come to embody you know, collective social reason becomes one and the same thing. In other words, willing and duty become indistinguishable. Um, and he puts it quite explicitly um, that you know, insofar as the state is spirit objectified, uh, will and right are the same, um, essentially the same relation. Um, it culminates, of course, uh, as you know, with uh, those final sections on um, on world history, with an account of uh, of spirit and the world spirit as precisely that which wills itself into existence, using the various states, nations, individuals, and so on as its unconscious tools of the world mind or world spirit that's working through them. So that in this is section three forty eight. All actions, including world historical actions, culminate with individuals as subjects giving actuality to the substantial. But these individuals are the, quote, living instruments of what is in substance the deed of the world spirit, and they are therefore directly at one with that deed, though it is concealed from them and is not their aim and object. And again, you can find any number, as you know, any number of uh, kind of variations on this fundamental logic. There is a process, or a, there's a process of which is essentially that of the idea giving itself actuality, which is a process of self-emancipation. Yes, but it works through uh, um, individual willing subjects, nations, groups, collectives, and not uh, as a not as a, the dimension of their own willing. Uh, so that's what I want to say about Hegel. Whereas in Marx, I want to say it's the other way around. Uh, although there are parts of Marx where he's too Hegelian still for his own good. Um, the fundamental drive of Marx, I think, is to at least clear the space for an another account, which is actually more like a Rousseauist account, in which it is precisely people who collectively will their own future and impose it on, um, uh, on, the, on the world as it develops or on the tendencies that otherwise shape the world. Um, so I think that some of this would be easy to demonstrate, some of it would be more controversial. The easy part, I think, would be to refer back to some of uh, Marx's early work, the fragments on Feuerbach, some of the other writings from uh, 43, 44, the insistence on the fact that it's people who change circumstances and it's not the circumstances who change people, the insistence that uh, it's people who make their own history, even if, you, of course, you don't do it in circumstances that you choose. And again, there's a, any number of variations on that fundamental theme, the working, 
people have to uh, have to work for their own freedom, their own liberation, uh, as they put it in the famous first line of the uh, the rules on the international. So that w- that would be one approach. More difficult maybe is to consider the the, the kind of hard scientific side of it, the, the, the marks of capital, where, of course, we, we have uh, in the kind of preface, what the, the first version of capital, which was published in 1859, is the preface to a contribution to the critique of political economy, the famous lines that it's uh, social existence that determines consciousness, that people enter into economic relations that are independent of their will, precisely, uh, and it's that, these, it's that these material processes determine um, how, what people think and how they proceed. And here it sounds very Hegelian, precisely. Um, I'll read you a little section from this um, preface. We have to distinguish, he says, between the material transformation of economic conditions of production, which can be determined with the precision of natural science, this is the theme that Althusser will develop, for example, and the legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophic, in short, ideological forms, in which people become conscious of this conflict and fight it out. Just as one does not judge an individual by what he thinks about himself, so one cannot judge such a period of transformation by its consciousness. On the contrary, this consciousness must be explained by the contradictions of material life. Now here, the fact that he's emphasizing material life as opposed to ideal life, so he's inverting Hegel as he puts it, right? Turning, turning him on his head, extracting the rational kernel, etc. All of this is fundamentally Hegelian, as I would see it. The, the, the simple... A, a, a ascription of materiality to these processes doesn't change the fundamental dynamic. This is more or less a determinant. There's a process of transformation that carries people along with it. You've got to remember, he's writing in the late 1850s, this is Marx's period of pessimism, I would say. You know, after 1848, the disappointments, by 51, he's really genuinely pissed off and pessimistic, and he stays, stays in a kind of sulk for much of the 1850s, uh, and he's got to work himself out of it. And the way I would see what he does fundamentally with capital is come up with an account of how to get out of this nightmare of history, basically. How to provide an account where this kind of determinism uh, will be, uh, can be overcome and can be seen to be um, uh, c- coming to an end. You know, the, the conditions, basically, for getting past this kind of account are being, are, are being created such that people will be able to have their own consciousness, their own deliberate decisions, their own fundamental collective willing uh, become the yardstick of their own uh, behavior, their own the, the measure of their own activity. And that's exactly what I think capital is trying to do. It would be, I think, ridiculous and wrong to read this kind of determinist picture of history as an account of what Marx himself is trying to explain in Capital One. The, the, the process is exactly the opposite, I think. That Again and again, it's a, an attempt to provide a critique of something, a kind of machinery of mode of production that, that confronts workers as something that is alien, external to them, ready-made outside them, as he puts it, that exists without their intervention, whose, as again, as he puts it, whose entire intelligence and will seem to be incorporated in the capitalist outside them, as if it's the will of capitalism itself, as if, in other words, their own capacity to cooperate, to combine, to work together, is a capacity that belongs to capital, Right? And, uh, and that is what he's trying to reverse, to show that, no, no, this capacity is our capacity. And it's, again, it's a point that Negri's made uh, quite well. Um, so again and again, you, find a, you, you certainly find an assertion that within capitalism itself, there's no place for free will, not, neither for the uh, worker, but also nor for the capitalist either. So what the, what the, what the capitalist does, forced by competition, uh, does not depend, as he puts it, does not depend on the will, either good or bad, of the individual capitalist. Right? The capitalist is also bound by the coercive force of the mode of production, the way capitalist work, the capitalism works. 
that, imp- that applies also to the things that are you know, anticipations of positive forces like cooperation, the cooperation of labor. Again, it's imposed on workers. Um, again, quote, as the powerful will of a being outside them who subjects their activity to its purpose. And this is the scandal of capitalism. Capitalism is this, this machinery that generates movements of value which vary, you know, for example, movements of exchange, which, quote, vary continually independently of the will, foreknowledge, and actions of the exchangers. Their own movement within society has for them the form of a movement made by things, and these things, far from being under their control, in fact, control them. And that's the basic thing, is that here we are, we're people, we're subjects, it's a very simplistic way of putting it, but, and we find ourselves being controlled by things. And this is the thing that has to be inverted and turned around. So again, uh, capitalism is, quote, a social formation in which the process of production has mastery over people instead of the opposite. And the point then is to invert that, to gain mastery over this process. Um, that's exactly how he puts it, in fact, that cap- capitalism is the rule of the capitalist over the worker as the rule of things over man, over people, dead labor over living, product over producer. Again, quote, an inversion of subject into object and vice versa. Um, and this is what has to be changed. The, the, the only virtue here of the worker over the capitalist, they're both enslaved by the process, but is that the, cap- the worker knows it. The worker experiences it as such. The worker, he says, has the advantage, quote, of seeing this enslavement for what it is, rather than as it appears. Right from the start, the worker is a victim who confronts capitalist alienation. As a rebel, this is from the the appendix, the end of Capital Volume 1, as a rebel rebel and experiences it as a process of enslavement. And he experiences it, moreover and more importantly, as a process that can only be interrupted by his own, her own, their own self-emancipation. And that's the fundamental thing. So we can only break through all of this, we can only penetrate the appearances, we can only interrupt the process insofar as uh, we can end this, this whole nightmare by free, deliberate association and appropriation of these means of production to expropriate the expropriators and so on. Now, the life process, as he puts it, this is um, on page 173 in volume 1, the life process of society, which is based on the process of material production, does not strip off its mystical veil until it is treated as production by freely associated people and is consciously regulated by them in, co- in accordance with a settled plan. And again, you can find any number of variations of this, the insistence on consciousness, planning, deliberation, the, the, and the, with, a, I think, a very kind of explicit voluntarist dimension to all of this. Now, there are conditions for that. You can't just snap your fingers and, and, uh, and, and do this under any circumstances. There are conditions, yes, but the conditions simply enable this process, this determined voluntary, collective process. And that, I think, is what is um, fundamental. You see it, for example, in the struggle over the working day. You see it in, the, you see it in a limited uh, form in the decision to impose factory legislation, later to form trade unions. You see it in a more uh, important and more um, elevated form in the kinds of uh, revolutionary thinking that some of the post-Marxists, like Lenin and so on, will, will try and think. So that's, I think, the, the fundamental thrust of what Marx is trying to do in, in capital, is to... Uh, prepare the ground at least for a process in which we could move from something like this imposed determinism to a voluntary reversal of it. And it's very much the thrust also, I think, of his political writings. To think about circumstances under which newly associated, free, freely associated producers will be able to regulate their exchange with nature, as he puts it, rationally, and bring it under their control, their common control, instead of being controlled uh, by it. So very briefly, the 18th Brumaire of Louis uh, Bonaparte 
you know, again and again, the theme of that book, I think, is to rage against the failure of nerve, the lack of resolve, particularly of the party of order, if you remember the book, who hesitate, who fail to grasp the nettle and lose the opportunity to, to, uh, uh, to grab control of the situation and to impose their will on this sort of fluid situation uh, and just give it up. They, fa- they don't have the nerve to mobilize the people. In fact, they don't want to do that um, because, of course, it would challenge their own power. So that's in the negative mode. Positively, you have it in his, um, in his history of the Paris Commune, which is, as he puts it very emphatically, a government of the people, by the people, without referring to Lincoln, um, uh, which is very much a, a, a matter of uh, asserting popular and collective control on a situation in which uh, this logic, as I mentioned at the beginning, of a kind of effect that anticipates its cause, it becomes quite explicit. Um, he says, um, you know, the crucial that the, the passage that reads that starts its true secret was this, and it goes on for a while. I won't uh, read the whole thing here. But the true secret, the, the key to the commune is, quote, it was the product of the struggle of the producing against the appropriating class, the political form at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labor. So here you have very clearly, I think, the superstructural form, in other words, the effect, if you like, in which the structure, the sub you know, the so-called economic base, can itself be deliberately, forcefully, voluntarily transformed. That's what the commune is, precisely. It goes on to say, the political rule of the producer cannot coexist with the perpetuation of his social slavery. The commune, remember, is a political process, the commune was therefore to serve as a lever for uprooting the economical foundation upon which rests the existence of classes and therefore of class rule. And that's a very good example of this dynamic of the self-emancipation uh, process that intrigues me is it's a lever or an effect which can get at the causes that, is, that, that might have determined it before, if you see what I mean. That, in other words, it's a superstructure that can uproot its own structure. Commune was to serve as a lever for uprooting the economical foundation. So it's a, it's a way of, uh, I think, refusing and rejecting this notion of a kind of deterministic model. The foundation determines, the base determines the superstructure, etc. And he goes on to say, it's a strange fact. In spite of all the tall talk and all the immense literature for the last 60 years about emancipation of labor, no sooner do the working men anywhere take the subject into their own hands with a will than uprises all at once all the apologetic phraseology of the mouthpieces of present society with its two poles of capital and wage slavery. And that's absolutely right. I think you can generalize that across, say, the civil rights movement, the anti-colonial movements. Again, pretty much any instance of self-emancipation that I can think of we can talk a lot about this. We can talk about the emancipation of the Palestinians, about the, the colonized, the enslaved, etc., until the point at which the people themselves grab hold of it and appropriate the right to do this for themselves. And at that point, everything switches. Then it's about demonizing radical terrorists. It's about inserting law and order. It's about finding you know, fundamental forms of social consensus, uh, and everything changes. And Marx anticipates that very well. And the, and the commune was one of these polarizing instances. Um, and he insists on this. Uh, and that, I think, is what is powerful in his account of the commune, is this very much a kind of voluntarist reading, very Rousseauist reading of the commune as an instance of a general willing that asserts itself in the face of the opposition uh, that it confronts. Now, let's end by saying, and you could generalize this then through, as I said, through Lenin and Che and various others. You get a good example of it in the, in the polemic that uh, Lukács, a little brief um, rebuttal uh, that Lukács offers to Rosa Luxemburg's critique of Lenin at the end of History and Class Consciousness where he looks at uh, Rose Luxemburg's critique of the Russian Revolution, where, uh, and so I'll I'll end on this, Uh, and this I think is is really one of these well-known but still very fertile uh, debates or discussions between Rose Luxemburg and and Lukács. 
Uh, and you'll remember that Rose Luxemburg accuses Lenin basically of kind of vanguardist centralism, right? That he's, um, that he's trying to force through a process rather than letting the Russian proletariat and working classes um, work it out themselves. Um, first of all, though, you've got, got to remember that uh, Rose Luxemburg said that, yes, but in the context of a fundamental appreciation, nevertheless, of the victory of the Bolsheviks, right? She says, you know, what is the essential? So there's an essential, she distinguishes at the end of the pamphlet between an essential and non-essential aspect. She's going to criticize the non-essential aspect while affirming the essential aspect. What's the essential and enduring aspect of Bolshevik policy? She says, well, it's the determination to win, which is quite right. Uh, the capacity, she says, this essential thing is not this or that secondary question of tactics, but of the capacity of the action, sorry, capacity for action of the proletariat, the strength to act, <clears throat> the will to power of socialism as such. In this, Lenin and Trotsky and their friends were the first, those who went ahead as an example to the proletariat of the world. They are still the only ones up to now who can cry with Hutton, I've dared. You know, we've dared, we've tried this, and we've won. We did what had to be done to win. And that's what she says is enduring and fundamental, <coughs> essential in Bolshevik policy. So in that sense, and this is the last part of it, uh, part eight, she says it's, the, it's an immortal historical service that they performed. However, her critique is that, she, is that they forced it too much, right? They should have trusted more in the slow, organic process of the coming into consciousness of the masses. Uh, she, said, she says that what's more important is, the, is creating the conditions in which the masses can actively participate in this process uh, as, a, as a gradual and organic historical coming into awareness. It must arise, as she puts it, it must arise out of the growing political training of the mass of the people. And Lukács' argument uh, simply uh, comes down to this is, can we afford to wait, basically? We're in a context in which um, the organic movement of history uh, gives us no cause for uh, complacency or optimism. He says, uh, Rosa Luxemburg has not understood the difference between this historical transition and the one that saw a move uh, outside of the, um, the move from the aristocratic or feudal mode of production to the bourgeois one. There, uh, Lukács concedes, you could, afford, you could afford to wait. You could allow this growing organic movement uh, because that empowered the, um, the bourgeois historical actor uh, uh, you know, who, was, who was the actual uh, revolutionary actor in question. But here, there is no such thing. All that happens is as you move towards the increasing intensification of capitalist contradictions is not the... Uh, the growing organic necessity of an actor to arise and overthrow it, but simple, you move into barbarism, you move into fascism, you move into uh, the intensification of social conflict. But no, there is no necessary organic growth. There is no kind of process that will see uh, an increasingly aware proletariat emerge out of this process. Instead, what you have is a fight, and you have a struggle that has to be won. And therefore, he, he privileges here the conscious, deliberate, voluntary organization of the Bolshevik party, the conscious, this is history and class consciousness towards the end, page 282 if you're interested, um, the conscious organized planning of the economy, but which can only be introduced consciously, and the organ which will introduce it is in fact the proletariat, the Soviet system, uh, insofar as that is facilitated by the party, by the Soviet party. And that in the context, not that this is the end you know, of the process, but that in the moment, uh, of, the, of the struggle, it's got to be that that takes primacy. And so that's what Lukács is trying to defend here. And I think that is broadly speaking in line with what uh, Marx is saying about the commune. And uh, it's how I'd want to end this by, by, by trying to insist on this distinction then between uh, these two accounts of freedom. On the one hand with Hegel, a process that might be the process of development, historical necessity, historical reason, um, 
it might be tagged now onto a, a narrative about modernity or the global development of an economy, something like that, uh, versus uh, this Marxist trajectory, which is one of voluntary intervention, interruption of these processes, and the assertion of a planned, deliberate, conscious program. I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, and we have uh, about a half an hour for discussion, so... Who, uh, James? Uh, there was a figure that you didn't mention, and that's Nietzsche. Now, what's interesting about Nietzsche is he uh, situates the will uh, between memories and imagination. And if, if you do that, then uh, the conditions for the enablement of the will have to include its relation to memory and imagination. And that means that the, the conditions for enablement uh, become historical. Historical in a sense um, that works against enablement, hence his long discussion with nihilism. Now, now you have no discussion at all with, with, of nihilism there in this relation to, to will and collective will, which is quite surprising. Uh, given the, the examples that you give. So, so how is it that your treatment of uh, will escapes the problem of nihilism in relation to memory, imagination, and the conditions of the new? Well, wh where does the nihilism come from? I, for, for me, it's not the problem isn't with, even in Nietzsche, it's not really coming out of will, it's coming out of, out of, um, out of servility, out of the fact that the, the will of, um, the will of, the herd or of the people itself is a will to that wills nothingness. That, because not a, the higher wills are always wills of, that are rare and exceptional. The will of of the noble, of the great individual, the world. You know, the the the, the will of the few. The argument around nihilism for me is that is part of Nietzsche's fundamentally reactionary orientation. That he's disgusted by the very prospect or or thought of a will of the people, something that could be as vulgar as the will of the masses. Right. I think Lesurdo is quite right about this. That. Nietzsche's, a lot of Nietzsche's work is driven by a hatred for that figure, the kind of dem a democratic will, for example. And a democratic will is nihilist because it's not, it doesn't have the strength, it doesn't have the, the strength in that hard-edged sense of the kind of, uh, to will what is, what is rare and unique and of true value. But the will itself, um, I, I don't, in Nietzsche I think it's a kind of, um, so for me, uh, Nietzsche is not, a, not an important thinker in this context. If anything, he's a, he's a problem because he, he, after Schopenhauer, he's, he pulls the will away from its fundamental political orientation. And, and as a result, we lose it. Um, it becomes, in his case, I mean, yeah, he'll talk about a will, a, a will to power, at least in the, let's say, beyond good and evil type period, uh, as a will to do something exceptional, the, the determination to do it which is rare and being you know, constantly under attack in this society of mass homogenization and constant dumbing down and so on. But the will in this traditional sense of free will determined to do accomplish a certain kind of act, he's always skeptical about that. He basically says that's an illusion, right? There is no such will. There is no doer behind the deed, right? There's just the deed. And that, I think, is a problem. I think um, we gain nothing by that. Then you have a simple ontology, and this is what happens with his will to power. In the end, it becomes a simple ontological uh, name for naming the flux of being, right? For naming basically the way being is shot through with its own power to affirm its strength. And it differentiates itself then between active and reactive or between strong and weak. And it turns into ultimately a kind of ontological version of might equals right, I think. Uh, and that, that, is a, that is a disastrous 
philosophical move. And that, um, and I, I would say that Deleuze, for example, runs the same kind of risk fundamentally, um, and it's very different from the the tradition that you get out of Rousseau, where the will is all about what is willing, what is right. You know, that, that it's not about might equals right. It's about will could be in that sense very weak, but it has the capacity to figure out what is right, and then you know, invent uh, a way to, to accomplish it. There's a, there's a line I like a lot in the film Queimada, which I talked about recently, um, where one of the characters there says, it's much more important to know where does he want to go without knowing how than, than the opposite. Um, and, and that's what I think what's powerful about the concept of will is that we can indeed resolve will, you know, to, to figure out where we want to go, even if we have no idea how to get there. But that's still the point of departure, and then we've got to figure out how to get there. Whereas I think Nietzsche increasingly uh, collapses, you know, the innate self-affirming quality of being in its flux and so on, um, uh, to the point that you lose that capacity to determine where you want to go, and that politically, I think that becomes just a kind of apology for power, power apology for strength. Um, yeah. Hi, Pete. Um, I was going to ask about another different figure, but Foucault's an interesting case. I'm not. I'm not totally sure about that. I. I. Um, I, I agree with though that he, he does insist that we can make ourselves free, and, and that is consistent with Sartre. Right? It's not that different. There, there's a certain way in which Sartre will insist on this too. You can always make something of what is made of you, and for all the obvious differences between them, there's some common ground there that I think is underestimated. The free, only free in relation to a certain set of technologies. That. That's where Foucault arrives at a position that's like that. But it's not how he starts. Right? You have a pretty. In the '60s work, you have some pretty radical assertions of something like pure indetermination, uh, whether it's through, unless you want to say that it's relative to things like madness or limit experiences or extinction. Um, but there's something there that was a kind of, like a, like a hyper, again, it's too, the problem is it's too Nietzschean, but there's a sort of an insistence on a radical, uh, kind of hyper-existentialist freedom there in some of that early work, I think. But then, you're right, there's a, there's a shift in the 70s, it becomes more... Um, 
I think he becomes more pessimistic, more limited, more humbled by the process of history in a way. Like if you look at the transition from the 72 interview with Deleuze that people often quote, which is pretty radical, which is basically you, by pursuing your locally specific resistance to a certain set of technology, in the, let's say in relation to prisons, you contribute to the victory of the proletariat and, uh, and maybe beyond the proletariat to the plebs. And you know, he flirts with that Maoist um, moment. But... And in between, the thing that intrigues me is what happens in between. And the lectures that, now that they've been published on the abnormal and psychiatric power, what's interesting about those lectures, though that came from 72, 73, 74, is they insist on um, the question of the will, actually, precisely. So that later Foucault, as I see it anyway, becomes increasingly pessimistic about this, that voluntary self-determination becomes part of the problem. You think it's voluntary, but actually power is just working through your will, right? You've just been harnessed internally. It's a kind of biopower. It's extended itself to the mind. And so to get people to indulge in or to conform to voluntary servitude is precisely the apex of power. And that will become, the, I think, the emphasis of Foucault's late work. But there's that period in 72 to 74 where it's not so, where what psychiatric power is fundamentally is the power to overpower the will. Power comes out of a primary discourse of overpowering. So you see it in, you know, what is the fundamental thing going on there? It's psychiatric power develops as a set of techniques to crush the spirit, overpower the will of those who take themselves to be sovereign, the, the fool who takes himself to be king, right, in the case of, say, George III. But more importantly, more concretely, is the people who are taking themselves to be king in the context of the French Revolution. Right? The people who take themselves to be sovereign, who are asserting the sovereign will, who are taking control of their own destinies. Right? The psychiatric power is one of the responses that, that emerges to crush that. And so the part of Foucault that I'd want to kind of recuperate and link back to this project would be that one that emphasizes the, the primacy of the will to be self-determining and that, that then provokes the set of power strategies. In other words, the forms of power like psychiatric power and later the prison and so on are responses to a more fundamental popular capacity for self-determination that it solicits. And in this sense, then, that's the argument around the same kind of argument of uh, the history is the, you know, is the history of counterinsurgency. History is the process of state responses to popular power that you get in, you know, in the Subaltern Studies people and Negri and various others and, uh, that I would go along with. So I would want to link, I would want to see Foucault there, but, but I, you have a follow-up. Well, to I, this. I was just going to say that I, mean, I think that it's important to recognize that I think Foucault at some point says that, that power is only power that can be resisted effectively. Mm -hmm. that, that absolute complete determination is, is, is not the exercise of power, it's called necessitation. Um, and so in, I don't see the same kind of break, I suppose, there is always, there's always a certain sense in which, yes, every, everybody has a has a small margin of freedom. You, you can never be, be be not free in that sense. It's just that uh, this this can then be cultivated in different ways, and it's always cultivated in relation to specific things. The I, I just emphasise the point that I, I I think you can't you can't get that kind of conception of concrete freedom without without some commitment to to. Yeah, I, I, it's not to say that um, that um, something like the collective willing or the will of the people or something invents itself ex nihilo without any without any context. I, I, the way I put it before is that it um, it can determine its own path, and that that is what is primary in terms of figuring out a political sequence or working out what is what has to be done in a political sequence. But that the path proceeds across territory that it hasn't invented. So it's basically what Marx says, you know the. We, we inherit the ground that we have to traverse. The obstacles are there. We don't, you know, they're there. But, and so in that sense, they have a determining force. I, I just, I wouldn't call it, 
determinant, though, or determinist. They're there, and we can invent ways around them. But yeah, it's not so. It's not self-inventing or self. Um, doesn't emerge ex nihilo. It emerges out of this particular ground, out of a set of conditions that arise, just like it does in the trivial sense of, you know, the capacity for self-determination uh, is something that you, that people have to acquire. Right? An infant does not have the same capacity to determine its own destiny as a, as whatever you want to call it. An adult does. Right? Whatever the thresholds are. And I think that applies at the level of collective self-determination as well as individual. Hi. Um, I see all the I'm going to be selfish and jump in really quick only because it follows on that last point, and we have a lot of time, so hopefully that's okay. Um, but I want to ask you a bit about the account of the human that seems to be implicit, or the, the anthropology in what you're saying, and specifically um, where this capacity for will comes from and, and for self-determination, and how one can or one or, or the collective can evaluate what is right or what the course of action is. Um, and it seems like this is what would, would definitely push your project beyond someone like Beju, um, having that account uh, of the specifically human and, and its role in this sort of activity. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. I mean, I don't... I, 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 pro- I would go along with what Agent said before, that there are, there are, there's a process, an evolutionary process, mm-hmm. I'd say, that gave rise to a, a set of organisms that, because... You know, for whatever accidental f- series of reasons, it came to be. It has a selective advantage, being able to have a certain measure of, of freedom, and having a brain that wires itself in large part according to um, its experience, mm-hmm. and that 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 turns out to be quite a successful way to replicate. Um, and and that once that's happened, you have conditions that enable you to, um, t- you know, to take your freedom. I think I, I think that it's trivial in relation to the taking. That's all. Mm-hmm. That what matters is what drives it is the actual practice, you know, so fundamentally it's an assistance on the primacy of practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the question of anthropology, how was it, what were the conditions that enabled me to be capable of doing what I just did, is a thing that you ask after the fact. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's there, but it's a sort of secondary question. Anthropology is something you can worry about afterwards. Um, what you don't do, what at least I would say what doesn't happen is, you don't first say, how, how is it that we could make ourselves free? What would we have to do in order to become free? You, you, um, and, and then when you figure out the conditions, you go ahead and do yeah. them. Uh-huh. It's that there are you can determine collective practices that will enable this to happen, mm-hmm. and and if you have time afterwards, you can reflect on what was the conditions yeah. that enabled you to do it. But the primacy of the practice there is what I'd want to insist on. Um, it's, a little, it's a little bit like um, the way Chomsky's gone about exp- trying to explain how the language works. Mm-hmm. Is that well, we can add, we can reflect on a few things about the way language works. It turns out it works pretty well, even if coming up with an account of how it emerged is very tricky. And in fact, maybe it's only just starting, and this seems very improbable. Um, but the fact is we have this capacity if we were prepared to take it. Um, so I just want to emphasize the, the taking. Um, it's not necessarily an anthropology either. It's a, there, I, there might be other kinds of beings that are capable of will. As far mm-hmm. as we know, um, they aren't, they aren't very... They're, they're, you know, there's no, I think, sig- historically significant point of comparison, but it's not to say that it wouldn't be possible in principle. Um, so it's, it's the capacity of, of willing itself is the issue, I think. And what are the criteria for determining the right answer? You said, well, they're the criteria for being able to engage in that process. So if you're interested in... Um, Rousseau, I think, it gives, gives a pretty full account of what these things are already. But what are the processes you need for general will for, for it to proceed? Well, first of all, it has to exist. That's the main thing. So there has to have been some kind of voluntary association that interrupts a previous... Um, uh, historical or 
or natural sequence that divides people, that separates them, that 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 involves um, all kinds of coercion and compulsion that prevent something like voluntary action. So something has to have happened to enable that to be interrupted, whether you call it an event or crossing a threshold. Or, but you know, in the case of I, I, historically, it's a very slow, laborious process of people winning the right to combine, to associate, to form unions, to form political parties, to do all of those kinds of things. That assembles then a, something like a political capacity. And there's no shortcut for that, and God knows it's, that's generations of, of work and courageous commitment and so on. So that's the first thing, you have to, and you have to maintain that. Um, second is that uh, you have something like collective will if it's deliberate, meaning if it involves collective deliberation and not fiat from some avant-garde uh, you know, or, or by, from some other form of determinism, but actual, ongoing, ceaseless discussion, debate, argument uh, um, that enables, so you see that in the Jacobins or the Bolsheviks, these parties that are supposedly, you know, ultra-terroristic, centralized, you know, driven by quasi-dictators like Lenin and Robespierre. In fact, if you ask me, at least they're remarkable for their amount of internal dissension and argument. The Jacobin Club is a really good example. There's all kinds of vicious arguments going on in these really remarkable debating chambers that they established without real precedent. Likewise, the Bolsheviks, you know, Lenin would go hammer and tongs with Kamenev and, you know, Zinoviev and so on, and they could still hold it together. So there's a big, I, I, I think you can, me- in terms of measuring capacity for internal debate, then the Bolshevik Party is considerably more democratic than, say, the Labour Party is in this country, um, or the Labour Trans-Tory Party, because the level of consensus is so, there's more, there was more internal argument in the Bolshevik Party in 1917 than there is right now in practically the entire country of the United Kingdom. Um, so that, so you have to have that. That's the second condition, in other words, ongoing deliberation that is able, though, third thing, to, um, to lead to decisions, to resolutions and decisions that can, that, can, that can have some teeth, you know, that can get a grip on a situation. As South said, you know, what is Marxism? It's fundamentally about getting a grip on a situation. And I think that's right. That, so a capacity to make a decision uh, and to carry, uh, you know, a collective will. There is a collective will insofar as there is this capacity to follow through on a decision. And that indeed involves, fourth, a capacity then to confront the resistance that that will provoke, you know, uh, whatever that resistance is. Now, that'll take different kinds of shape, and it didn't, that then becomes a capacity to, to fight the struggle and to win it. The Bolsheviks, for example, succeeded in doing that. The Haitian revolutionaries eventually succeeded in doing that. that that's the question. Do you have that capacity to, um, to, you know, to prevail, basically? And that is, a, that is essentially a strategic question, a question of power and so on. So you have... As I'd see it anyway, collective willing is that process, you know, these mm-hmm. series of things, without a guarantee that you'll have the right answer, but mm-hmm. a capacity to continue and persevere in this process and trust that if you do that, you will arrive at what will eventually be the right answer. So I like, you know, Rousseau is extravagant, but when he insists that, you know, the collective will, the general will, will not be able to make a mistake in the end, even if it might get things wrong in the short term, it might be led astray, it might, you know, but if it cultivates what he calls virtue, in other words, the capacity to put these things first, to the exclusion of private factionalist interests, etc., then eventually it'll get things right. And I, I think that's, I think that's right. Oh, thanks. Um, did you? Okay. So in this order, I'm Rory, Alex, Adrian. And with much uh, what you were saying in your last reply, um, um, I was going to ask um, just about the, in the, the debate you said that there's debate between the Rosenberg and Lukács. Lukács. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was going to say in something. Um, to ask you a question about, and then somebody sort of like so, sort of answered that, and you're uh, sort of trying to almost 
describing to what um, to where I was going or um, going to with um, your last reply is that you know in, in some way with Rosenberg though with that debate there was that there's a sense that somewhat the workers are almost a bit like sheep almost a bit like the, the idea that that they are that the that the it's almost like the Bolshevik they they almost had an implicit assumption that it's almost the Bolshevik party that caused the revolution the people sort of passively went with it and then then um, as you in your reply said that actually that's that sort of been hinted at that um, I mean um, you it's like the historian Edward Acton in the his article Libertarians was it Libertarians vindicate the question mark in um, reassessments was it Russia, revolution in Russia reassessments in 1917 you know that there's hmm. The, the, he makes the point that there are there, there are interpretations of the revolution that have actually that you know the populace of Russia, not just the Bolshevik party, as you were saying, you know, the, the democracy within the Bolshevik party, that Russian society as large was actually quite in the wake of the sort of provisional government giving them um, freedom of speech and freedom of conscience in, um, after the February Revolution. Actually, were it's a hotbed of debate. Yeah. And that you, um, you know, so I was going to ask that in some way was there with that Rosenberg. And sort of, in a way, almost being contradicted by this new sort of, as and as you were saying, this sort of evidence that actually the Russian people weren't just you know sheep sort of following the leaders. That there was a hotbed of debate. I mean, was was this one point? Was it the there was, was it the first sign of was it one of the first signs of real debate when was it the um, when the provisional government proclaimed sort of freedom and stuff and it's, it was going to sort of rule the country and was it someone went went back at um, went back at the um, speakers and who appointed you. Mm-hmm. So um, I was just gonna ask that question of, you know, in a way was there that Yeah, I'm not I think that's a good point. I'm not a specialist on it, but as I understand it, even pretty mainstream things like the Oxford history of the Russian Revolution, I'm forgetting the woman's name who wrote it, Kirkpatrick or Fitzpatrick maybe, um and it's a pretty middle-of-the-road account, right? It makes the point that this idea that the Russian Revolution was driven by this little narrow avant-garde sect, you know, the Bolshevik Party, and it was driven, fundamentally, it was a matter of the, the Bolshevik coup that cancels the, the um, Constituent Assembly and so on, has uh, really, I think, been quite heavily discredited. And that was very much a kind of Cold War. That was the American Cold War fantasy. That's what they wanted the Russian Revolution to be, because then they could dismiss it. But in fact, as you say, that the Bolshevik Party... Particularly, as you know, over the, as the war got worse and worse, as a whole series of things happened, that had become a real mass-based party, and they were being driven from below. And that happened, it's certainly plausible, it's certainly what happened in the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution is a really good case, it's been well documented by Carolyn Fick and others, that it was, it was the ordinary, you know, the great mass of ordinary people involved who put their lives on the line, after all, to fight in this revolution, were pushing their leaders who were constantly trying to, um, to limit you know, the demands of the people and negotiate a way out and, and to qualify them. And it was because the people were simply too strong for their leaders, basically, and forced it through. So it, it's always this, uh, I, um, you know, the, I think the Bolsheviks found a, a pretty good balance, though. You need, you, need to be, you need to be open to that kind of popular pressure while giving it some kind of force and direction and leadership if you're bound up in a civil war that you have to win. Um, and then the question is, well, how do you move from that into the next phase? But, you know, I, I agree with the general thrust of your point, absolutely. Alex, please. Uh, yeah, just two kind of questions and points. What would be, uh, if I was a capitalist and I was hearing your account and you talked about freedom and the idea that uh, 
Two good questions. Um, on the first, well, as you can maybe imagine, I, I don't agree. I think uh, capitalism works on the basis of absolute coercion for pretty much the reason that Marx said. You, you, the, the, the fundamental contract between worker and employer is based on primitive accumulation, which is appropriated what the workers own. Right? They're, they're, why do you have to sell your labor to an employer? Well, because your previous possessions, whatever, whatever ownership you had of either means of production has been taken from you violently. And maybe that took centuries. It did take centuries, but that's the fact. You only have, um, you know, you, there, there's. Um, it's on that basis that you. And, and so, what happens? You know, remember the end of Capital Volume One. We talked about colonialism. What happens in a situation? What he calls colonialism, in a situation where you don't have that coercion, where, for example, there's enough land for people to take land and not have to sell their labor. Well, capitalism doesn't work. You know, so Thomas Peel goes over to Australia with three thousand guys in hoping to establish another version of, you know, English capitalism, and the people just, just, you know, scatter into the countryside, take their own land, and they're not available for work. So, you can't, in other words, the free contract there between capital and labor turns out to be, you know, unpractical because, precisely because workers really are free there. In other words, they're free not to be workers. F workers only sell their labor freely because they have to. Um, and in circumstances where that ceases to be the case because they themselves combine to associate and form strong unions, for example, you see the capitalist reaction is a constant one of um, how dare you interfere with the free movement of labor. And what they do in response to that, of course, is to move production to places where there is no such freedom. So you move, you know, capitalism is stuck with this problem, right? You can't make large profits unless you assemble large numbers of workers together in factories or the equivalent. But you, when you do that, you run the risk of them organizing and forming resist, you know, coming up with a collective power that then can rival your ability to um, exploit them. And when you run into that problem, you have to move production to places where the police or the state or the army can deal with this, right? whether it's in Haiti or China or wherever it is. So that, the response, whenever there is something like that, capitalism's response is, I think, typically to say, well, we have to go to a place where workers are coerced more effectively into selling their labor on our terms. So I don't think there's any voluntary agreement. The, the, the contracts are imposed on the basis of fundamental power relation. Um, as for the institutions of, of freedom, well, of, of uh, you know, collective, um, collective willing, well, this is, 
this varies, of course, with the circumstances. The commune was an interesting example. Um, I think um, some of the institutions like the Jacobin Club, again, uh, and, the, and the various things that came out of that French Revolutionary period were remarkable, were unpredictable. And I assume if something like a capacity for collective willing, which is very much an eclipse in countries like this one now, uh, emerge, it'll emerge through things that are a bit unpredictable. It probably won't be simply the reactivation of, let's say, trade unions, church groups, etc. But there are some examples. You can look at places like Bolivia or Haiti where there still are quite strong networks of grassroots organization and look at how they work. Some, in a place like Haiti, for example, there, sometimes they work through um, liberation theological groups you know, or, or reading groups around, or discussion groups around, around political issues or theological issues. Or, um, they could work, though, through all kinds of different um, combinations and associations. I think this is one of the things. that People have a capacity to improvise these, these kinds of um, connections that we don't... If, if, if we can lift some of the restrictions... I mean, the, the problem is not going to be to figure out what should be the forms of association. The problem will be how to fight the resistance to that association, which will be inevitable. The first thing that happens, I think, when you start to see massive levels of popular mobilization are laws to prevent association combination. I mean, you see, virtually every time there's something like, you know, take like the UDF in South Africa, the United Democratic Front, or the various anti-colonial mobilizations, the first thing the state does is say no more than five people can meet, you know, or the immediate laws against combination association. And that's what will happen. Whatever the new forms of association are, they will be immediately confronted, I imagine, with laws or forms of compulsion, coercion designed to thwart them. And the, the first question that these new forms of association will have to come up with then are a capacity to deal with that. And Bolivia is an interesting case, right? How, so you have traditional forms, the ALU and so on, of, of, of collective meeting among indigenous people anyway. You have strong but residually strong, I suppose, trade unions, mainly out of the miners um, sector, and now the coca growers and so on. And they were strong enough to cope with the forms of you know, counterinsurgency that they provoked. And then now they're inventing new forms of political association there, as I understand it. So I don't know. I think there's a lot to be inspired by there. Um, likewise, you, know, you can look at any example you like, the Zapatistas and others, but there are, different, there are ways of doing it. We have to figure out what will work for us. Um, in a way, your response is kind of people just work out on this themselves. You can't just have a template for how these things work. People Yeah, but don't underestimate. That's, doesn't, that sounds a bit like a cop-out, right? But don't no, underestimate that capacity. Like, a, say... say and just, again, in case I don't know that much about it, but the debates around what kind of trade union will work, um, which has taken, now has become, and this is a real question in the United States when you had a dis, you know, discussions between the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, and more conventional reformist trade unions. And the Wobblies would say things like, well, the form, how, do we, how do we hold each other together? How do we maintain our collective power, well, it'll only work if we resist the things that will make it too easy for us, like having written binding agreements with written binding contracts that last for a certain amount of time. As soon as you have something like that, let's say a five-year contract, you mortgage yourself to a fight for its renewal on terms that may not be in your favor, because in five years' time, who knows if you'll be strong enough to win it. You know, you have to... So they, they for example, insisted precisely in order to maintain or to improvise a form of being together that would allow them to prevail and ultimately to you know, to work towards a genuine socialist mode of production, they said, we have to resist a lot of the things that, you know, conventional trade unions have come to see as absolutely fundamental. So, for example, the trade union, which is now one of the most established, you know, but also basically moribund forms of association, could be radically rethought, I think, and, and reconsidered. 
got to, yeah, people's capacity to do that is, uh, I think, yeah, you have to have faith in people's intelligence and ability to improvise, yeah. All right, now, Adrian, and if this is okay, this will be the last question. Um, so. Any objections? Let's yeah. Let's collectively. Uh, well, there you go. Um, well, I want to begin by uh, proposing two different ways of reading the phrase "cunning of reason," or at least what Hegel is trying to get at. But not so much with an interest in you know arguing about Hegel interpretation, but rather to use this to you know raise a question or a couple of questions. And just I'm curious to hear how, within the framework of the project on the will, dialectical dialectical voluntarism, you know, how you might integrate some of these aspects or account for them uh, in your notion of these processes involving the collective uh, engaged in liberating itself and actively seizing power uh, or, you know, seizing, you know, freedom or autonomy for itself. And, you know, of course, uh, the philosophy of history is rife with passages that allow one to, uh, you know, present what we might describe as a top-down reading of the cunning of reason, where there is some sort of, uh, you know, a large-scale Weltgeist, uh, you know, that is basically pulling the strings almost like a transcendent puppet master, and then yeah. is being actualized in various particular forms as nations, peoples, etc. Um, but of course. Also, and in this way, you know, we have to bear in mind the influence of Adam Smith on Hegel, among other things. You know, the notion of the bottom-up genesis of a certain cunning of reason, where through a series of horizontal or lateral relations between elements that are fully imminent to, you know, that one field, without having to posit some sort of macro-level collective super-subject like the world spirit, um, that there's a, there are these effects along the lines of what he's trying to capture with that phrase, cunning of reason, which emerge in a bottom-up rather than, you know, due to a top-down sort of dynamic. Um, and when you think about it, you know, flashing forward to someone like Sartre and his, you know, pessimism about how long, uh, you know, the, these sorts of liberatory processes can last and about the counter-finalities which crop up uh, and, and, you know, the manner in which there's kind of inevitable petering out of, of uh, you know, the liberatory uh, oomph, you know, of a given group infusion, right? Um, I'm just wondering how... Uh, this sort of dynamic might feature in your account of what unfolds amongst members of a collective engaged in one of these sorts of processes in which liberation and a sort of active realization or you know, seizing for itself by the collective of its freedom, how this sort of bottom-up cunning of reason or even aspects that Sartre's getting at that might you know, resemble this feature in what you're doing in terms of the dialectical Okay, that's a good question. I think there's a clear difference between Hegel and Sartre on this point, but between the up, between the top down and bottom up, there may be not so clear a difference. At least for me, the, so the invisible hand type thing that he's getting from Smith is pretty explicit in the philosophy of right, um, and so it's this imminent rationality. I don't see this so different. I think this simply this is this is the idea of freedom working itself out in history. Whether it comes from above or below makes no real difference. There, it, there's a process that's actualizing itself, and it uses whatever. Um, Instruments and vehicles that 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 it finds at this or that moment of its um, emergence or objectification. So it'll use Napoleon, it'll use this or that, and when it's done with it, it, it discards it. Right? I mean, he's quite brutal about when, when a nation has contributed. You know, when the world spirit has basically used what it can get out of this or that nation, it discards it and drops it and moves on to the next thing. And in that way, a market does the same thing. Right? You know. When uh, when something's become economically redundant, it's no longer necessary to exploitate or you know maximization of surplus value. It becomes structurally irrelevant, and you can abandon it. it just, there's no need to keep exploiting it. It's, it's 
So in that sense, I think there's something quite there's something fundamental about that being left aside or tossed aside, um, and uh, while history moves on, um, that is absolutely ruthless, basically. And it's very different from what South was talking about. South is talking about, as Rousseau talks about, the exhaustion of a capacity to continue. It's also what Badiou is interested in too. You know, how do you counteract the general tendency towards exhaustion. Um, given that these things are difficult, one of the canonical features of will is that it requires effort. And effort is tiring, and you run out of energy, right? Um, so, South, Rousseau, Badiou, they come up with resources for basically encouraging people to continue, for revitalizing. What, what is virtue for Rousseau? It's just a capacity to re-energize yourself. Um, and, you know, again, there's a whole series of philosophical reflections on what, what that might be. Um, so I, I would see that as a different kind of problem. In, in the Hegelian case, there's no such thing. It's not like Napoleon could, or the, could kind of re-energize and reinvigorate himself and tap back into the world spirit. He's, he's history, you know. He played his role. He's burnt himself out. He's, he's, he, the fact that he then dies is like a total afterthought. It's um, whereas in the case of South, it's not the case. I think you you can always and in Badiou too. You know, an old love affair, an old. You know, I bet you, I'm sure, lives in the absolute confidence that May 68, that it's too early to tell if it's over, right? That it could rekindle itself. That I'm sure he believes that that's exactly what's happening, actually. That the current reinvigoration of the concept of communism, largely as a result of Badiou himself, right, is the, precisely is the rekindling of the energy of May 68. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Unless we have to get out of here. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, no. Uh, oh, well, did somebody else have their hand up? Or was I... No, I was pointing at you. So, yeah, keep going. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, you know, when I talk about a bottom-up sort of genesis of kind of reason, I would certainly want to distinguish this first from Adam Smith because, you know, again, you have to have a kind of top-down regulation in terms of a certain structure that's put in place that will then allow for the dynamics of the invisible hand to unfold appropriately. And so, you know, of course, there's some problems then with, you know, using that as an example of bottom-up. You know, and likewise, I certainly agree that there's not a direct, you know, I mean, sorry, is a different in this respect in some regard, although, you know, I was having kind of an associational link there in terms of a rough similarity. But what I would want to push on is, I mean, Hegel aside, just Hegel out of the picture. Yeah. I mean, if we assume that there are going to be certain logics or dynamics which can unfold in this bottom-up fashion in terms of, you know, imminently arising out of the lateral or horizontal relations between constituents of a collective, including a collective that is involved in, you know, a process of self-emancipation or in, you know, the realization of freedom, you know, it does seem as though this issue of a kind of internally generated and sort of unconscious dimension, you know, will manifest itself even in this kind of collective. And then the question is, you know, how might you know that be accommodated if you're willing to accommodate it in something which, nonetheless, and I, I'm sympathetic, as you know, to your overall project in terms of emphasizing the voluntarist aspect that can allow that to be part of uh, a, a, a collectively willed voluntaristic. Uh, uh, Sorry, what is the thing we have to accommodate? Um, the, the well, the, the idea that if, if you can have a kind of cunning of reason effect, mm-hmm. something along those lines that doesn't require positing some sort of it that then is done with you, and, but rather literally is something which is uh, you know, produced out of the interactions or the horizontal relations between constituents of the collective, including one that is involved in a liberatory will, uh, you know, a project of emancipation. Yeah. Do we need cunning? I think that's just reason. That's just collective reasoning, isn't it? I, and and that it does, it's not very cunning. It's just it's it's just rational. 
it's rational and it's voluntary and it's hard work and it's laborious, you know. But that and that it provokes this massive. I mean, it's not hard to read the history of the modern world in terms of a set of responses designed to prevent all these things, to fragment and divide people, prevent uh, assembling of people, to prevent deliberation, you know, to disrupt access to information, you know, for you know along all the lines that turn the media basically into a form of disinformation. Um, at, you know, to, to prevent and thwart the capacity to make voluntary decisions and certainly the capacity to defend them in the face of the resistance it provokes. So it's not like... Uh, the, there's no reason to be... The fact that, for example, that, that's been a pretty discouraging couple of centuries in some ways is not surprising. You could see it, as, in fact, as a measure of the fundamental power of, of, the, you know, of the people that's driving this thing. And hence, you could see it as a source of perverse um, encouragement in a certain way. Look at all the trouble the world has had to go to to squash this, right? So I, th- there's that, that capacity of, of, um, um, of collective reasoning and willing, deliberating, and so on, doesn't need cunning, in my opinion. It simply needs, a, it simply needs the thinking it through and, and acting it through and, and committing to it. Um, and that's enough. Well, I, I don't know, actually. That's a good question, but if it's redundant in the first place, maybe you can avoid it. Okay, well, uh, at this point, there is nothing left to do but as much as thank Peter, but let's also now thank Peter, Graham, Adrian, James, and all the speakers who uh, participated on the panel over the last couple of days. Can, can I oh. say, I'd like to, to thank the whole audience. I think it's not oh. been about the speakers, it's been about oh, the questions. That. <laughs> <laughs> you guys do that. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I'm just... <laughs> I think that, 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 that Brian and Mike have provided an extraordinary forum for us, and it's one that's avoided the sad passions that you often encounter when you get lots of academics together. So I'd like to thank everybody, including Brian and the speakers. I think it's a collective thing. And, uh, yeah, I agree. Very well. I would like to say that I don't remember ever being at a more interesting conference, and it bodes very well in your future. Mm. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you.